Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. I spent the early days of motherhood counting down the days until it was over. The sleepless nights, the potty training, the clinginess. And now, a decade after I first became a mother, as I feel daily their dependence on me slip away, I curse myself for having not clung to every minute. But the trouble is, you can't stop your children growing up. You can't prevent this change from happening. Understanding and embracing change is a theme at the heart of my guest today's book. Julia Samuel is a psychotherapist whose work over the last 30 years has supported bereaved families and more recently those struggling with changes in life. She says, We are brought up thinking life is an upward journey, a stairway to a better place, each step higher than the last. But the reality is far less certain. There are ups and downs, and the only certainty that exists is that there will be change. Julia, thank you so much for coming to me today and and chatting about your new book and about this idea. It's lovely to be here. Nice to see you, Marina. Um, And your listeners listening. (laughs) Julia, I think this change is so interesting. If change is such an inevitability of life, why do we fear, fear it so much? Or am I abnormal? Is it is it normal to fear these natural changes that occur in life? No, I mean, in the last 30 years of me seeing clients, they all may come with a presenting, different present, presenting issue. But the thing that universally connects them all is their difficulty with change. Because we... It's, we have a kind of paradoxical, contradictory relationship to change. On the one hand, we kind of like the idea of the excitement of the new and we look forward like you did to your children growing up and imagining this kind of happy uplands future. But when the actual process of it is emotionally uncomfortable. So small changes just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Big changes feel actually painful because we internally the process of change means that we have to adapt internally from an older version of ourself to a newer version of ourself and change forces it's discomfort that forces us to recognize that shift when everything like the happy phase of being a mum when the children are really easy and cozy you feel completely settled but as you're talking about now you can feel these little Um, shakes inside you of seeing that change is afoot that they don't need you so much that they may want to do things independently from you and that discomfort is the signal in your body ah this is a change this is the beginning of a new chapter and so it's a very very useful indicator that we have to listen to because the research is unequivocal that 
those that don't change have less joy and less success in life and they find the next change more difficult. And research also shows that either developmentally or through events, change happens every seven to ten years. So the seven-year itch is really a thing that, you know, through maturation or through getting married, getting a new job, moving house, getting divorced, having a baby, all of those different things force change on us. And the more we listen to what's going on inside us, the more we treat ourselves with kindness, with self-compassion, get support from others, then then that allows the kind of weather of the change to move in and out of us. It's like the ebb and flow. So as you described it, I kind of imagined a wave, a little surge of discomfort. You breathe, you support yourself, and then you let the wave run its own course to the, to the end of its other side. If you blocked it by getting very busy, by kind of refusing to think about it and shut yourself down, that puts pressure on that feeling of discomfort and it narrows your emotional bandwidth, but also you feel the, the intensity of it more over time. So when you're dreading change, when you're, I mean, because obviously there are changes that we do look forward to in life. You know, you look forward to the changes like I just described, you know, once they're potty trained, once they can swim and, you know, and you look forward to having a baby and also children look forward to change. I mean, my children can't wait to grow up. They can't wait to go off to the next stage of school and I'm sort of slightly dreading it. Um, is, well, actually my first question was, do you think it's age that determines how we embrace change? Do children find change easier and do we find it more difficult because maybe we're more set in our ways? I mean, to go to the first bit of your comment, I think often even positive change, like getting married or having a baby, is it is exciting and it is exactly what you want, but often the process of it, the kind of recognition that saying yes to this person means no to all the dreamy others that we kind of pictured, or that having a baby actually robs you of your independent life for the next kind of seven years. So that the the joys and the love and the connection outweigh the cost, but there's that cost of adaptation even for the positive changes that we want. I think children, if they're supported and allowed to change, they do change much more naturally. Because we as adults, one of the things that blocks us embracing change is fear of the unknown. And we want to have control. And I think particularly in the 21st century, when we have every gizmo and gadget that gives us this full sense of control, we think, well, if I really organise my diary enough and I, you know, knuckle this down, then I'll be in charge. And actually, that's the thing that people need to let go is that to allow it to evolve and change them. And children are much better at that. They're much more open to that. And some people obviously find changes a lot, or change a lot easier to deal with. But I think it also depends on... I mean, it was interesting in your book, the story of, of uh, Anita and... Lena. Lena. And she was a mother who'd had a massive conflict with her daughter who was getting married, basically on, on the surface about the wedding. But actually, you know, you, you worked out that it was about this sort of not wanting to let go which I think is very common it's incredibly common I mean there are you know all those rows about the color of the napkins or who's going to be on the invitation list or and they're often those small things that they have the most enormous rows about and I think they actually are camouflage 
for often the parents' recognition that, you know, they are no longer the centre of their child's life. You know, their child may have been an adult for 10 years, but if there was a drama, they would always probably revert to the parent for advice and support and love and affection. And then it moves them from the mothership or the parentship onto this new ship where they develop their own family, their own future and their own life. So I think for a mother, I think in in particular, but fathers too, it's this kind of wrenching feeling of almost like they're being unfaithful but it's a feeling it's like how dare you you know like the partner the the future husband or wife you're stealing my child when they know in their head they want more than anything for their child to be happy and to be loved but it's a feeling that you often don't want to be feeling because it feels weird so you want to be this sort of dewy-eyed slightly weepy soft mother when actually you have this ferocious rage is it jealousy you're being almost? abandoned i think it's all of those feelings of jealousy fury it forces you to realize that you're aging that they are now young and have all the beauty that you probably don't have anymore a different yours is a different beauty it's an aging beauty they don't need you as much anymore and you lose control and you have to reconfigure an adult parent a fully adult parent is an entirely different beast to the parent you are now so it forces you to kind of step back about what you influence and what you control and that you have to be allow them to be the person they are and you can be a sounding board and you can be incredibly loving and you can be very supportive, but you do, you're not in charge anymore. And that's what Lena found difficult. And she came from an Asian descent, so she had always been incredibly dutiful. So she'd come from generations of women who had done their duty by their parents and obeyed. And having a sort of Western daughter, um, although brought up in, a, in an Asian sort of culture at home, she had a kind of western attitude to life and she couldn't believe that her daughter didn't behave as she had she was absolutely outraged by it so it also brought up her own childhood her own feelings which always happens with us there's not it's never just what's happening on the outside it always ignites one's own stories and losses and relationships do you think that change that transition is one of the hardest we have to deal with in a sort of normal life obviously there are some people that deal with profound change through grief and loss that they hadn't anticipated but in terms of what we do anticipate because when we have children we all anticipate that they're going to leave at some stage we hope we hope. <laughs> we'll be more worried if they're age 40 they're still at home and eating your cottage pie and yet we still find it hard to do do you think I mean I was just thinking about it last night you know we are programmed to love this child because it needs protection and so we give them our all we invest so much into them more possibly than the relationship we have with our partner and then essentially we are dumped we are got rid of and and also they can be quite beastly to us too our children they don't need you anymore. is that the cruelest Blow. kind of natural change that life delivers us as mothers you mean yes I can't think of any worse I've got to say <laughs> oh I think I mean the worst is if you if you have a um a is the, is having a, a fight with your children that you don't speak so that's the worst mm. is when there's conflict Maybe over something like a wedding, mm. you know. I mean, I've heard just recently someone who'd read my story who their best friend's mother is now 
threatening not to go to her child's wedding because the child isn't doing it in the way that she wanted and she doesn't really like the husband. So that is a hundred times worse. Yeah, I think... I mean, I think as parents, what we kind of... You know, we give our children roots and we... In that process, we give them wings. And in some ways, what you're talking about now, it is an ongoing process from having a baby that's breastfeeding that literally cannot survive without you to a baby that's a toddler that learns to crawl away from you and look back where you are and kind of goes on when they trust you. So it is a process of connection and separation as they grow up. So um, I think we're doing it all the time. You know, when we drop them off at school, age five, we learn again we feel the freedom, like, my God, I've got four hours or whatever it is. But we know they're coming back. We know. That. But also, when your child marries, if you have built a really secure relationship, and the key is good communication and where there's trust, you don't lose the child. You reconfigure it. So that's the thing. I don't think you lose them. It's not like they leave your life forever and they don't come back to but you. But they could. But they can, I mean, they could go and live in Australia. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Maybe it's that transition of you no longer have the power. Because, you know, at the moment I can decide whether or my children go on a play date. If they want to sleep over and I don't like the person who they want to sleep over with, I can sort of say, no, you can't. But that's not going to last for very long. And I wonder whether that's that big tidal change that when you realise that they get to make decisions for themselves and it doesn't actually matter what you think anymore. And that's an incredibly important change to allow. So I see it as an expansion and a reconfiguration, a recalibration of the relationship that involves a lot of work on the part of the parent in particular. It does require work from the child too because, you know, all the research shows if they are loyal to the parents and not their partner it is a, a reason for divorce in, in the marital relationship. So, you know, in family systems, we really need to configure the kind of ground and how the whole family system operates. And when you bring a new person into that family, they bring with them their own patterns. You know, say Christmas Day, when you have a new daughter or son-in-law... They will have the things that they've always done on Christmas Day, whether it's that they open their presents in the morning or tea time or they go to church or they don't go to church. So you have to allow the expansion and the growth in the family to include this new person with their ways of being and the things that they offer um, and adapt. 
because then you you know there's no doubt that the happy the 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 individuals that thrive that are happiest healthiest wealthiest um, they live longer are those that have strong connected families strong connected love partnerships but strong connected families because if you feel like you've got this tribe on your side who trusts you who believes in you who is there when they when you need them but doesn't grip you you know doesn't try and control you that is you know the elixir of life in a way that is the most profound gift any parent can give their child but it means knowing themselves and it's like you you know that you want control so the work for you will be to say less go and storm around with ben around the kitchen and say i don't like that he's doing this job i wanted him to be this and look what he's doing or i don't want him to be a buddhist monk i want him to be a businessman but allow him to be the person he is and then that relationship will grow and develop and then you'll see the excitement and the thrill of that and for Lena it was such an interesting story she obviously came to see you and she you... was forced to see me oh was she I, oh, <laughs> by was, her husband I really admired her for having the sort of wisdom and and what was I loved how you knew exactly what the issue was but you didn't feel that you could tell her straight away it took a few sessions but ultimately when the actual problem was addressed, this inability to let go and this... And she was furious. So for those of you that haven't read it, the, the how her hurt expressed itself, which is often the case, was fury. This absolutely burning fury. And what's exhausting about fury is that it extinguishes any other feeling. So it is was completely overwhelming in her and it meant she didn't sleep very well, she couldn't really concentrate. And... You know, where we love most, we hate most. So she showed me, I wanted to understand the connection she'd felt with the child, Anita, not just the adult, Anita. So when she brought in pictures, photographs of this little girl who she um, was holding in her arms and playing on the beach and as a teenager, then I realised that really the scream of rage was scream of hurt, that she loved her so much. And that was what was overwhelming her. And once she could recognise that it was love and loss and let herself feel it, then it, it freed her. So it was the, the understanding, was it? Because in... And the permission to be angry. Yeah. You know, and... I, I couldn't tell her, you don't be angry, this is ridiculous. Because, you know, logic, you can't run logic through an emotional system. So she may be, you know, her husband was looking at her thinking... What is wrong with you, woman? You know, you've got me, you've got this life, you've got, a, you've got a job, you've got happy children, you want your daughter to be married, to have your grandchildren, and yet you are this lunatic um, who's making all of us miserable. But it's so hard sometimes feeling angry and being told that that's irrational, that we shouldn't feel angry. It almost sometimes makes you angrier. Of course it does. It, and I, I'm not saying don't be angry. What I'm saying is don't be careful what where you direct your anger. So have a filter system. So be aware of, try and know yourself, understand the source of your anger and find ways of talking about it and expressing it where you're not going to do harm. And I think often parents feel like they own their children, even when they're 35, like, and that they owe them. 
you owe me this type of wedding. I, you know, wiped your bottom. I had sleepless nights. I didn't have holidays so I could send you to school. I have literally given my life to you. You owe me this white wedding. And that isn't really the case. Well, it's not helpful. And of course, when you put it like that, it makes absolute <laughs> sense. But I could also imagine that sentiment. But as soon as you vocalise it, of course, it you realise it's ridiculous. So what happened with Lena is that she she had to physically stomp around. So she, she did some kickboxing and, and she did some yoga. So you, she released it physically in her body. She talked to her husband a lot and they'd walk and talk and she'd stomp up and down. Um, but she released it and stopped directing it actually at her daughter and then that freed things up and then once she realised that she wasn't actually going to lose her it was just reconfigured Um, that was easier but of course an Asian culture is much more um, you don't let your children go in the same way it's a a different attitude and so it was the western attitude that interfered with her in a way this particular relationship was with her youngest daughter. Yeah, do you it's your think, last child. Do you yeah. think it's hardest to let the youngest go? Probably, yeah. I mean, it probably is because then your then you know your children have have really leading their own lives. Well, you're but sort it's of... freeing as well. It's liberating. Mm. You know, the people. So all the research. So mothers that go back to work that have a career other than just mothering, of course they do better because they have somewhere to put their energy, they have somewhere that gives their life meaning. Um, Parents who are in relationship do better if they have a partner. It may not be the father, but if they have a partner, they do better. If they have lots of good, close friendships, they do better. Um, So there are lots of things that contribute to people thriving. And, And, of course, the thing that will predict how they manage the separation is their genetics, what they're born with. Helen Fisher says that biology whispers in our ear all through our life. The forms of attachment and what we witnessed as a child and what we saw in our parents and what happened to us when we grew up, that will influence us. But also the choices we make afterwards. So one of the things that I saw clearly in the book, and there's a Harvard Business Review um, piece of research that shows that women who stop work at, at, at as much high up the ladder as they can, they continue up the ladder further. People who take that, you know, in the very Sheryl Sandberg way, if they take their foot off the pedal, oh, I'm going to have a baby in a few years, so I might as well stop now. Those that stop their career lower down the ladder... Um, don't do so well but also there's this absolutely terrifying piece of research that shows women that take long maternity leaves the babies thrive better there's less illness they do much better but the women's career do much worse they're not promoted um, they often lose their job so there is that forever conflict so my my kind of message from what I learned from the book is that even if you work part-time, which a lot of mothers choose to do, um, to get back, keep your one foot in the door of work because you would then want to build on that to have something else when your children leave home. There's also, we, you know, we're living for so much longer. We're healthy and able for so much longer. It's almost like, I mean, I'm 41. I 
probably not even halfway through my life yet and yet it feels Amazing. like an eternity you know it's almost like there are sort of two careers there's a career and, and almost that second career is longer possibly because if you think by the time I'm 50 I will you know working will be an even more important part of my life because it's going to be a much bigger part of my job because my job as a day-to-day mother isn't going to be so important and, and if you you're investing in that in it now which is fantastic and the the key to that is the essence of my book, is the, your capacity to adapt and change. So what everyone talks about now in, a, in this idea of a hundred-year life is that you have multi-versions of your work life, that you will you have this now that you're doing with the parenthood and things to do with, with parenting. You keep your foot in the door, keep connections, keep sort of um, interested... And then you can build on that. And in your multi-stage life, you may do something that is completely different and retrain. And then you may do something different again and retrain. So that, you know, very rarely are people going to be doing what our parents did, which was have the same job for like 35 years or 40 years, you know, be educated, work and retire. So this capacity to reinvent oneself and adapt and change is a key part of thriving. You talk a bit about conflict, and actually there is obviously quite a lot of conflict in people are resolving conflicts um, in the book. But then at one point you talk about how conflict with your children is a necessary part of them extracting themselves from you. It's obviously quite, a, it's difficult. And I've definitely find with, with Iona, I, there's much more conflict there. And Ben looks at us and he says, it's because you two are so, so alike. alike. And it frustrates me because I don't see any likeness at all. I just see this infuriating, irrational child. Um, how is is there a difference between good and bad conflict, or is all conflict positive? And what does that sort of positive conflict look like? Oh my goodness, there's a big difference between good and bad conflict. So, you know, secure families and family systems. The key to a good family system is the ability to communicate, openness, and trust. And communicating means that you fight and you disagree. But how you fight, so you fight not trying to wipe the person out, but owning what you're feeling is and saying what you're having difficulty with and making it um, reciprocal, you know, so that you, it's collaborative. You know, mum, I, I feel bossed around when you tell me I've got to wear this coat. Um, and I'm like, it's your uniform, it's not my decision. <laughs> <laughs> And so that she'll have to accept, but she yeah. doesn't like it. If you can accept that she doesn't like it, mm-hmm. and that she, but she has to wear it, and it's not her you're cross with, it's the coat. Mm-hmm. So it's not the person that's bad. But the big thing with fights is the repair after the fight. So if you have a rupture and she storms out, you know, she wants to go to her friend's um, sleepover, and you don't think that's a good idea because she has an exam the next day or whatever the reason... You hold the boundary, that's fine. She kicks against it, that's healthy for her to express her rage. She goes upstairs, slams the door, puts the music on loud. You've kicked the thing and, you know, she's a nightmare. She's so tricky, the teenage da-da-da. But then when she comes down, you say, I know that you really wanted to go and I know that's really annoying for you and and I'm sorry. And then you do something cosy, you know, that you get under a rug and watch a kind of old movie that you all love together or have a cup of tea or the hot chocolate or whatever it is. So that people learn that you can have this big fight and disagreement, but actually through it, you build a trust because you see that you can feel connected and love afterwards. Do you, have you had that? You know, yeah. if you have a big row with Ben and he storms off a few days working, 
it makes you feel awful. But actually, if he's here and you have a hug afterwards and you both say, God, we're so stupid, we're just exhausted, mm. then you really like him again. Mm. And is that, you know, I, I find with Ludo there's much less conflict. But I think that's partly because his character, but possibly he's he doesn't like conflict and he's maybe a bit more of a pleaser. Is conflict really well, important? An analyst might say that what you argue um, with Iona about is what you don't like about her is what you don't like about yourself yeah because you're so similar she triggers what you don't like about yourself yeah or you're doing to her acting out what your mum did to you unconsciously Mm. but if you have a relationship in which there is very little conflict does that mean that that relationship doesn't emerge as strong um, because the conflict has made it strong because you haven't had the conflict that will make it strong so is it a bad thing if you're not finding that you're conflicting with your children no no. I mean I think you have to work with the relationship and the the child that you have Um, I think it's worth wondering you know with the dad we wonder why he isn't is he scared is he I mean it may be just he's incredibly easygoing Mm. but sort of check out Mm. that he's not adapting too much to fit in with everybody else that he's not really voicing what he wants but if he's just an easygoing bouncy chap then that's fine and that is so true you know that teaching them not to be scared of of argument and conflict and I think you know when I first got together with Ben we argued very little that when we did have arguments then it felt like the end of the world because we just hadn't done it before and we hadn't really learnt that it was okay to disagree and it was okay to be really annoyed with each other and it sort of then felt like the end of the world because we hadn't actually practiced patching it up blowing up a bomb exactly exactly um so back to the 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 preparing for the empty nest um uh, you're really interested in this i'm really (laughs) interested in this i think it's one of the toughest you know i've I've reflected quite a lot on what's so difficult about motherhood and at the time you feel that you know potty training or teaching them their seven times table or getting them to wear the right school shoes is really 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 difficult and then you realize that it's that actually is nothing um it's that it's that leaving um that uh, and you talk about in your book letting them go so that they come back and I think reflecting on my childhood it's actually quite embarrassing how much time I still spend with my family and my sisters and so there you go that's the model well, but that I just I can't identify the model because it looked like to me like my parents didn't really do anything out of the norm, but yet we've all sort of migrated back, and it's genuinely you know, I've got a lot to be grateful for in life, and that's probably the th- one of the things I'm most grateful for. That's, you know, I've got the most help. treasured. Thing. It is, and the fact that my two sisters live down the road from me is just a, a very a very fortunate thing. But it was, it's your it's it's your tribe. It's my tribe, exactly. So how did they do that? What was that? Because they definitely, I mean, listen, they let us go. They did let us go. There was never any sort of question, that first sort of, we're not going to spend Christmas with you. There was, ne- there was never any guilt. And I sp- You've answered your question. Yeah. They didn't control you. They didn't guilt trip you. They didn't tut-tar you, raise their eyes. They didn't let you feel, make you feel that you owed them. Um, they weren't passive-aggressive. Um... And they were probably busy and engaged in their own life. So you didn't feel like you had to. Yeah. Um, And I think the other thing psychologically is allowing for all the different feelings that you have. You know that thing I said, you can't put logic through an emotional system. And and a way of saying is that you need to allow your head and your heart to 
to sit side by side. You can't make your thinking brain force your heart to feel what you want it to feel. But you, if you hold them side by side and kind of investigate both, so you know in your head you want to be able to let your children be interdependent, that they are grown up, they have their lives, and that they feel close to you and that they move in and out of that. In your heart, there's this tremulous heart like, oh my God, who am I if I'm not, you know, how am I going to feel? I'm going to feel abandoned, I'm going to be jealous, I'm going to be like a kind of ex-girlfriend over my son, my daughter. And so if you give yourself space, and you can do it by journaling, or you can do it by talking to a friend or your partner or a therapist, where you really kind of investigate and examine what is going on in my heart, what are all those feelings, and you find a way of expressing them with their emotions. You don't try and sit on them. And then you also investigate what you're thinking, what you actually believe, what you value as a parent, what you think is the right thing to do, what you want for your children. And you don't, and they may be sitting in opposition to each other, you know, absolute conflict of what you feel and what you think. Um, But if you allow them both to have their voice and their space, that calms your kind of whole emotional and physiological system down because you kind of know what's going on. And then the thing, the key to it is getting support. So self-compassion, that you allow yourself to feel what you feel, but also the love and affection of others, that you kind of feel close to them. And um, that really... and And that it's time. So the big thing... I think particularly in the 21st century, is that we want our emotions to match the event. So that, you know, in the transition, for instance, of a child committing and maybe going to live in Australia, we'd want to feel fine the day they take off on the aeroplane. And actually transitions take much longer than we give ourselves permission for. And also you need this fertile void. You need the kind of ebb and flow of limbo, of not quite knowing what's going to be next, of who you are now, what does this mean? And if you allow that space, it then frees you to suddenly, and it can be a sudden release, like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, boom. And then you're into the next phase of your life um, much more confidently. I would have loved reading in both of your books, um, in Grief Works as well, are all these sort of studies of different sort of relationships. Has the observation of people in turmoil throughout your career changed your perception of life? Has it shaped you as a person? Definitely. I've been, in some ways, it's been an incredible um, privilege to be so close and intimately connected with how different people respond to different events and what are the things that influence those, what are the things that support them. Yeah, it's been an incredible, like a sort of PhD on how human beings are in the world. And in some ways, that's why I feel confident in writing the book, because for 30 years I've been doing nothing but that, you know, every week. So, yeah, I feel very lucky to have learned a lot. It doesn't mean that I'm not a complete idiot sometimes. I was going to Or I'm a total bitch sometimes. (laughs) Or I behave terribly or have a tantrum. Because it doesn't make you not human. But what it does give me is a kind of clearer picture of probably why I'm being a bitch or, you know, all that stuff. 
And in your experience, you've got four children yourself. You've got how many grandchildren? Six. Six grandchildren. And then one due in April. Um, did you find that that change of them, the finally, I mean, because obviously four children, it takes up your whole life, your whole existence. I mean, I struggle with just two. Um, did you find that transition difficult from very full to quite empty? I was furious on each of their wedding days, completely furious. Did you recognise that? Furious. furious. I, with the, my first daughter got married um, 13 years ago. Um, she got married in a register office. And when she walked down the um, aisle uh, with her husband, I literally wanted to pull him off him off her and say, take your filthy hands off my daughter. <laughs> And, and presumably I love she him. wasn't a child bride. No, no, I mean, she was 25, <laughs> and which is a bit of a child nowadays. But I adored him. I knew he'd make her happy. She was completely different now that she had him. And it took me, it didn't take me that long. It took me about two months to recover after the wedding. Um, and I really thought I lost her. But, you know, we're incredibly close. We have a wonderful relationship now where she if she bosses me around I mean the power balance is completely different so um and maybe it's always been with her (laughs) but so yeah we have a very equal relationship where we're incredibly kind of open and honest with each other and um trusting and yeah it's a really lovely relationship actually and did you recognize that that fury you were feeling in that moment was that transition of of letting go I did so I the thing that therapy has taught me is I didn't act out so I didn't let rip on them um but I had my husband looking at me like you are a complete lunatic he didn't didn't feel any of it he just enjoyed it and I felt this kind of physical wrenching um but I felt very lucky that I worked that I'd always had a job that I loved and I really think that has saved me lots of times as a parent where I can put a lot of that energy into working when I couldn't put it into them anymore. Well, I was going to ask whether women feel that wrench harder than men, and maybe that is the reason that they do, that traditionally, or very often, the men are working and their career is possibly all more all-consuming than the mother's career. And, I mean, do you think that... Are there some men that find that transition just as hard as women or is it typically something that women find harder to deal with I mean I think there's a real generational shift so you know I'm a baby boomer so my husband and I are quite traditional um, in the kind of parenting stakes although he was incredibly close to them Um, but when I look at my son son's in-law they're you know very very involved parents and they want to be very involved parents um, in a way that you know, my generation, the fathers just weren't, because they weren't brought up. It wasn't expected. It wasn't a sort of thing. Well, he's a very involved grandparent. And I think the next generation of fathers will feel probably much more like the mothers, because they're, like Ben, they're much more emotionally day-to-day involved in their children's lives. That's You know, a lot of fathers take paternity leave or they share the childcare. So I think that there's a real generational shift that dads are much more integrated and involved in their children's lives. And I think, so they'll feel that space as well. Your books, the sort of structure of the books has always fascinated me because it's a little window into something that's, you know, usually very confidential. I mean, 
with these stories you get obviously no uh, um, indication from the, as the reader when they happened when in your 30 year career that they happened were they all quite recently or were yeah. they sometimes quite far did they happen quite a long time ago no so the, the for your listeners there are 18 case studies and it's divided into um themes so it's family love work health and identity and there are 18 case studies and two or three of them are composites but the rest of them are my current caseload so they're they're people I've been working with um, for the last three four years because it's it's very live so I taped sessions um, and I transcribed them but I completely changed their identity so they're unrecognizable their jobs what they look their age so the the process of the therapy and the challenge is is real and live and I think you can really feel that in the story but everything around it makes them not recognizable and would they recognize themselves yeah do they know so, that of course the, no no yeah. I had to get the permission they've yeah they've um they just had to sign a, uh, an agreement so they as I wrote the studies I gave them to them and then that became some of the therapy so there were things that I'd said like in one of them Cindy didn't want to talk about her father her relationship with her father and then having read it she started talking about her relationship with her father yeah so um it's an iterative process that they're part of um and I think they really I mean I feel incredibly grateful to them for opening up such intimate personal aspects of themselves so generously um I think for them, seeing how I think about them and how I saw the relationship helped them think about themselves in a slightly different way from a different point of view. And I think they really got something from that. So it, it made us closer, I think, as in, the, in the psychotherapeutic relationship. You're obviously amazing at, you know, generating a relationship. I remember the first time I met you, I felt, you know, you're great at connections. And that's obviously a really important part of life and leading a fulfilling life. I think one of the things you said is a good life is built with good relationships. How we construct them is the foundation of everything else. And I was just wondering, I mean, obviously... It's really what matters most. When we look back at our lives... It's the love and connection to others that matter. We don't think about the house we lived in, the presents we got, the money we earned. We think about love. Yeah. Is there, how can we teach our children to be able to forge that? You know, there are some people that are just better at the communicating and building those relationships. Is there anything we can do as parents that can ease, that can help our children that learn this incredibly valuable skill? I mean, never underestimate the importance of modelling. So if you're someone who's a really good listener, who's emotionally intelligent, who kind of gives them time to be who they are and listens um, and speaks honestly and builds trust by doing that with warmth, that's what they'll learn and that's what they'll take into life with them. So, I mean, that is... So children who come from families that are, you know, and I think the secret to communicating is being able to listen. So that's the thing I'm best at, is I'm a really good listener. It's much less what you say and more that the person you're listening to really knows that they're properly, actively heard. Because then they feel like all of them is understood. And I think if we offer that to our children, and that's by watching watching their, their, their facial cues, the tone of their voice what they're saying, what you imagine they're not saying, 
and kind of building that level of trust by encouraging them to voice what is, what's important to them by listening. Do you think you're a better listener now than you were at 18 or a better relationship forger? Is that something that continues to develop beyond adulthood? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a better therapist now. It's that 10,000 hours. I think the more you do something, the better you, you get at it. And I, I, I do think one of the things that is happening now, and maybe this is too big a generalisation, is that there's a huge amount of transit of transmitting. So the thing I, I've written eight case studies about millennials. You're a millennial, aren't you? 81 to 96. No, I'm not quite. 78. Uh, your generation X. Oh, that's news to me. Um, <laughs> that's always that, that speaker's always They're the least me. spoken about generation because there are very few of you. Yeah. Because of economic things. Um, less of you are born. But millennials have all the feelings that we've all had about growing up and having families and anxiety. and But it feels to me like they have them with the volume turned up. But they're also much more emotionally intelligent than the generations before them because they've had much more parenting. So the millennials have had more parenting attention than any generation before them. You're giving your children far more parental attention than you ever had. So that they're very aware of their emotional selves. But the thing I think they do is that they've learned how to transmit, they've really learned how to communicate, and it's amplified and multiplied by social media. And I think the thing that's missing is the groundedness of actually being properly heard. So I think they keep shouting louder, wanting to be heard more. When I think, you know, people send texts and, and messages to someone the other side of the room in the office. And then when they see them, they don't say anything at all. And I think that that is a worry, I think. Well, Julia, as always, it's a real pleasure to chat to you. Um, I absolutely loved every page of your book. I particularly loved the bit on families, but everything I really identified with and I thought it was fascinating and wise and my copy is full of scribbles and underlining, so I know I'll be going back to it. Um, so thank you so much for coming along. I feel I feel more confident about the, the letting go. The transition. Yes, yes, and it has been something that's been worrying me, so it's been great. Thank you so much. And being an aware parent like you are means that you'll be a really good enough parent. That's all anyone can be. Do you think you can be too aware as a parent? I do think we worry so much now because we know so much. I literally knew nothing when I was a parent. It meant I did make lots of mistakes, but I wasn't constantly criticising myself that I'm not doing... I didn't have as much guilt as parents now Yeah. because you all listen to each other's podcasts and read so many books, and I think that gives you information... But I think really you just have to trust yourself, that you know yourself and you know your children and that loving them is enough. Mm. And you know that this idea of perfection, I think, is unbelievably damaging, that we've got to get everything right, I think is incredibly toxic. Mm. Um, and I think that is one of the, the troubles about knowing too much about parenting is that you're, you've got this shitty committee criticising you in your head, imagining another parent that's not having just shouted at their child or, you know, everyone shouts at their children now and again. It's repair, it's giving them a hug. I'm sorry, I'm tired. I should have done it. I love you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Describing everything that I do the whole time. <laughs> but if you give them a hug and really mean it and really say you're sorry... 
Yes, they thing. understand. And, and then, then modeling, that's what they you have learn. to say sorry because plenty of people can't say sorry. Plenty of people can't say sorry. Yeah, I mean, I would never expect my children to be perfect and never mess up. So they wouldn't expect the same of me. We yeah. all just, that's part of life, isn't yeah. it? So it's lovely being on your podcast. And oh. Lovely um, talking to you. And, uh, and I love writing this book, I must say. It's been a fantastic process to do. well this too shall pass stories of change crisis and hopeful beginnings is out now and i highly recommend it um, thank you julia and thank you all for downloading this podcast you can subscribe rate and review us wherever you got this podcast you can also follow me on instagram i'm at marina.fogel but in the meantime from me and julia thank you for listening and goodbye thank you